uh, listening to that song last night. I was kind of working on the lyrics and putting everything up there. And I, I love the song. I was probably good that everybody else was up in bed because I was singing downstairs by myself. But you know, here I'm singing about I want to dance in the midst of the rain, and then I'm upstairs, and then the storm hits. Right? And I'm like, oh man, did I close the windows? Do this, do this. I mean, I hope this is done. God's like, really? <laughs> you were just singing. You were going to dance in the midst of the rain. Now you're freaking out. Okay, a little practical application. Uh, well, we will continue in the book of Ruth today. Um, it is Mother's Day, and we do want to honor you guys. Um, there's a lot in the book of Ruth with Ruth and Naomi and their relationship and their dynamic as mother and daughter. That's really cool. And uh, we're, gonna, we're just going to continue today. Last week, we talked about something that I think is extremely important for all of us to really get a hold of, and it's this, that nothing just happens. Nothing just happens. Um, God is sovereign over everything. There's nothing that happens that surprises Him, okay? We know that. But there have been questions and conversations over the centuries between philosophers and theologians that are trying to... You know, rectify, we have a God that we believe in, and then we have all this evil in the world. And how do we, you know, how do we reconcile those two things together? And so it leads to conversations where people say, well, you know, God could be all good, but he can't be all powerful. If he's all good, he can't be all powerful, because if he was all good, he would want to stop all the evil that's happening in the world. So he doesn't, so maybe he's not all powerful. Or they will say he is all powerful, but he can't be all good. Same reason, right? He's all powerful, he can step in and stop the evil, but clearly he's not because it persists, and so maybe he's not uh, all good. And then we have questions like, why do bad things happen to good people? And you hear that quite a bit. And the Bible actually has a pretty simple answer for that one, uh, as much as it stumps people, and it is that there are no good people. Uh, the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that there are none who are righteous, no, not one. So. Uh, the real question is, why do good things happen to bad people? Uh, we're very blessed in lots of regards. But um, we, when we say things like this, when we doubt the sovereignty of God, what we are doing ultimately is we are judging him before he has judged sin. And he's going to one day at the end of time. He is going to judge sin. Now, he intervenes and he makes corrections, obviously, as we go. But at the end of time, he will judge sin. And we need to leave room for the mystery of God. I mean, we know a little bit about him now. He has revealed a little bit about himself, but we will spend the next zillion years in heaven getting to know him better. Um, so, if he was small enough to understand, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. Amen? So, it's okay that we don't have all the analogies. Sometimes we would like to know the end from the beginning. And one of the best things that I've heard, I guess, is analogy. It's not perfect, but if you think of a parade, and, uh, you know, it's all lined up through downtown. You've got people that are standing at the beginning of the parade. You've got people that are standing in the middle. And you've got people that are standing at the finish line. And everybody only sees their part of the parade. But if you were to be in the Goodyear blimp, you know, up above everything, you had the aerial view, you could see the whole thing from start to finish. And we're bound by time. God is not bound by time. He knows the beginning from the ending, uh, from the beginning from the end. He is sovereign. He causes all things to work together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. That's where faith comes in, right? That's where we have to walk out our faith. Um, 
all that's required of us, really, all that's required of us is faith. Mm -hmm. Faith and acknowledgement of who he is, that he is sovereign. Uh, there's a story of a small group. A church has a small group every week. Did you imagine that? A small group every week. And uh, they would kind of go from one house to the other, so it would rotate around. And whoever was hosting would provide all the snacks, and they would do the opening prayer. And there was one lady, she was the best host. I mean, she always had the best food. She always had the cleanest house. But she was petrified to pray in front of other people. She just couldn't do it. She couldn't bring herself to do it. And one week she was hosting and she told the pastor, she said, this is the week. I'm going to pray this week in front of everybody. So okay, great. And so they have the snacks. And then uh, as they finish up, everybody stands up so they can do the prayer. And there's this long moment of silence. And the pastor kind of looks up like, is she really going really to pray? And he can see her and she's visibly shaking and starting. You know, she's got tears in her eyes. And she basically just says, Lord, help. Amen. <laughs> and it doesn't get really any better than that. Uh, we don't have to be long-winded. But saying, Lord, basically acknowledging that you are sovereign, you are master, you're the one that's in control, and help, this is acknowledging our need. I can't do it. I need help. I need you. And then amen being so be it. You know, so be it. You're in charge. I need help. So be it. Um, we finally get to meet the kinsman redeemer last week that we were been looking forward to. Uh, the great grandfather of King David, Boaz. Um, now, at this time, a lot of commentators will kind of disagree, and some of them think that maybe Boaz was not really a very nice person at this point. He was um, kind of harsh, because at this point, he was ruthless. <laughs> I know, it was bad. It was bad. I had to burn it sometime. I thought this week would be the right time to do that. So. <clears throat> All right. Ruth goes out. She says, I want to help provide for us. We're in a bad spot. And I need to do what I can do. Remember we talked about praying like it depends on God, but working like it depends on you. It's a partnership. He wants us to come together. She says, I want to go out and glean in the fields and do what I can to help us. And her mom says, go for it. And so she just happens to end up in a field that belongs to the man that we're going to spotlight here today, uh, Boaz. He walks out into his fields and he blesses his workers. He wanted to be out there with them. And he says, the Lord be with you. And of course, they turn around and bless him in return. Say, the Lord bless you. Uh, he's actually very kind. He's not, uh, not hard like I was talking about. He is actually a picture of Jesus. He's a picture of our Savior. Um, and in one of the very few uh, times that Jesus actually makes a statement about himself, his character, uh, he says this in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29. He's talking about taking my yoke upon you because my burden is light. And he says, I am meek and lowly of heart. I am meek. Meekness is power under control. It's power that's been harnessed for a specific purpose. And Jesus is the ultimate example of that. Ultimate unlimited power that was focused for the reason of coming to this world and redeeming you and I. And Boaz, a man of great strength, of great power. Uh, Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah is prophesying about the coming Messiah. And he says that he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. That's who our Jesus is. He's gentle, he's kind, he's meek. So Boaz, from a human standpoint, is 
You know, a powerful man, his name means standing in strength. We talked about that. He's a wealthy man, but not just in resources, also in character. Um, character will always win out. Your character, who you are on the inside, will eventually show itself through trials, uh, through troubles. It's going to show itself. Uh, there was a man who wrote, fame is a vapor, popularity an accident, riches take wing and only character endures. Uh, the great evangelist D.L. Moody said, character is who you are in the dark. It's who you are in the corners of your heart when nobody else is looking. We call that integrity to what you're doing when nobody else is looking. But that's what character is. Um, I personally am keenly aware of who I am uh, without my Savior. It's not pretty. Um, it's, uh, it's something that, you know, I guess the older we get, the more you look in the mirror, the more you see the reality of who you are far apart from Jesus Christ. But when Boaz reaches his foreman, and his foreman is a picture of the Holy Spirit, and he comes to the unnamed servant, and he notices Ruth. He had heard about her, but he hasn't seen her. This is the first time he sees her, and he comes to the foreman, and he says, whoa, like whose woman is that, is what he says. And so he sees Ruth for the first time, and he's pretty impressed. Um, I remember the first time that I saw Alicia, that I noticed her. <laughs> I was at a basketball game. And I was supposed to be watching the game, but I wasn't watching the game. <laughs> I was distracted. I never liked basketball anyway. So. <laughs> All right, let's read our text for today. We are in Ruth chapter 2. We're going to do verses 8 through 13. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that you're reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Um, the ancient prophet Micah isn't exactly a household name. We don't read from the book of Micah very often, which is too bad because he was a man who really had it together. Uh, he was overshadowed at the time by a more well-known prophet in Isaiah. Isaiah and Micah were prophesying, were working at the same time. They were ministering in Israel. And uh, Isaiah was ministering and working with the elite. He was up in the king's palace. He was ministering to him and the leaders. And Micah took his message to the streets. Um, that's really where he was. He had a care and a, a concern about the poor. Uh, he is actually the one that prophesied, interesting because we're talking about Bethlehem. Uh, here with Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, but he prophesied about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. And Micah states what many in this day wonder about God. How do we please God? I mean, that is, that's an ultimate question. People ask that all the time. How in the world do we please God? And teachers and preachers over the years have made it really complicated. That's what religion does. It makes it very complicated. We have a whole long list of rules, things that we need to do to try to appease a God that we think is upset with us. And then it turns into all kinds of different painful acts uh, that we have to do, and then we turn into religion, and we can't 
get saved by works. We can't do it on our own. And then we kind of want to give up. But Micah erases all the things on the list and replaces it with probably the finest definition of simple faith. In Micah 6.8, it says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Uh, some translations say, to love mercy. Do justice, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God's not looking for big external displays. He's looking for a change in your heart. Um, this, this, today in the story, we get to see this play out in real time. Uh, we get to see Boaz, the man, and what he's doing uh, as he walks out this principle. Uh, he is a man of justice. He is the kinsman redeemer. He's the one that's going to come and stand up for the widow. He's going to stand up for her rights. He's going to redeem her and her land. Uh, he is a man of kindness, as we're going to see today. And then he walks humbly with his God. So Boaz approaches Ruth. And he starts the conversation by saying, don't go to any other field. Don't go looking for something better. Okay? This is a temptation for a lot of people to try to go look for something better. There is a temptation in the church even uh, to go chasing after signs and wonders and messages that kind of tickle our ears and things that give us uh, warm fuzzies. But he says, stay here. We talked about Orpah and uh, Naomi's other daughter-in-law and how she had a big show of emotion along the road but she didn't have devotion like Ruth did. Don't go looking for some mystical experience. Don't go looking for some deeper theological truth. Uh, stay under the care. Stay under the provision of the unnamed servant, of the Holy Spirit, if you will. Uh, interesting because the Holy Spirit doesn't testify to himself. The servant, the unnamed servant, didn't talk about himself. He didn't take credit. Thanks for noticing, Boaz, that this woman is here. Yes, I'm the one who allowed her to glean in this field. He didn't point to himself. He just simply pointed Boaz to her. In, for, in John, I'm going to read out of John 15. 1526, Jesus is talking to his disciples about the Holy Spirit. In 1526, he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witnesses because you have been with me from the beginning. And then in 16, chapter 16, verse 13, he goes on to say, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Uh, the Holy Spirit simply points us to the Master, uh, and we should stay in his field. Uh, when we stray into other fields looking uh, for greener pastures, it doesn't really go well. It didn't work out too well for her husband, Elimelech, and his sons when they went looking for greener pastures. Uh, I have a friend, and I, I heard a song last night, and I thought about it, so I sent it to him, and I said, I'm thinking about you, and uh, this guy knows the scriptures better than anyone I've ever met in my life. He knows them. He has them memorized. Uh, he just has one of those memories. But he has straight off looking for greener pastures. He's straight off looking for, you know, deeper mystical truths. And he is straight into a lot of, you know, Eastern mysticism. And I sent him this uh, song last night. I said, hey, I was thinking about you. And, uh, and he sent me back a picture that said namaste and a bunch of, you know, Eastern religion type of stuff. And it was, you know, disappointing because here's a man who has the truth. He knows the truth. And yet he's wandered away, um, and it hasn't gone well. Boaz says, keep close to my young women. Stay in 
fellowship. It's important for us to remain in fellowship. The enemy is going to find it much more difficult to pick us off if we're staying in fellowship, if we're staying in community. Uh, we're not easily taken out that way. We need to encourage each other. We need to be sharpening each other. It's not always comfortable. Small groups are not always comfortable. Getting together and doing Bible studies with people that uh, may, not, uh, may not be our preference, right? But we are the family of God. We are living stones. We're called building the house of God. And sometimes those stones get put together and they rub up against each other. And uh, we kind of help smooth off some of the rough edges. But Hebrews uh, chapter 10, uh, verse 25, and I think, you know, probably one of the hardest things about this whole pandemic is that people, uh, either by their own choice or, um, you know, by choices that have been made by other people, uh, has kept them from getting together, has kept them from meeting together. And in Hebrews 10, 25, uh, it says, and do not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. But encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And that day being the return of Jesus Christ, which we uh, believe, obviously, is getting very, very close. But if we start to turn inwards, instead of communing with each other, instead of getting together, coming to church, getting together outside of church, uh, and building one, each other up, we start looking inward. And I can guarantee you, we start looking inward, we're not going to like what you're going to find. Mm -hmm. A lot of people say, well, I just, need to go, I just need to go find myself. I need to go figure out who I am. Um, and I guarantee when they get there, they're not going to like what they see. So uh, temptation is to start looking outward, start looking for other things, and then we become uh, you know, vulnerable to temptation. And speaking of temptation, I would encourage some of you that uh, aren't married yet, for those that you may be someday married, uh, to be mindful when we're in the field of our interactions with each other, with other people. Uh, there were men and women in the field uh, at this time. This is an important point. Men and women in the field. Uh, but it's easy to lose sight of what God's called us to and get distracted. Um, I would encourage you to seek God's will for your life. Figure out what he wants for you to do. He's put dreams, he's put gifts, he's put desires inside of you. And figure out what he wants you to do first. Then let him in the right timing bring that person to you. Because what happens is he's put those dreams and desires and gifts inside of you. And if you get it backwards and start looking for a person first and then try to figure out what God's will for our life is, we may be with somebody that has a whole other set of dreams, gifts, and abilities, and they may be called in this direction, and you may be called in this direction, and if it's going to work, somebody has to lay their dreams down so it can work. And that's going to cause some friction when somebody has to lay theirs down. But if we can be put together in God's plan where we find out His plan for our life and then let Him bring that person along, where we're stronger together than we would be by ourselves, then we can be on mission together. That makes sense. That wasn't really part of my notes, but uh, uh, speaking of being distracted. Okay, um, what was that? Fellowship. <laughs> Community and fellowship. Uh, God gave me the name for this church, Bethany Fellowship, for a couple different reasons. Uh, first, Bethany was just a little tiny place uh, outside on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And a small little town, kind of insignificant, except that big things were happening in Bethany. Small place, but big events. They only happen because Jesus was there. And when Jesus is present, big things can happen. When we just open up our arms and invite him in, the things that he can do, nobody else can do. Uh, when he's present, life's gonna happen. And when he's not there, death is gonna you know, take control. Um, he was constantly hanging out with Mary and Martha in fellowship, the second thing, um, besides 
being a place where Jesus is present uh, was fellowship. And Mary anointed Jesus. She broke the alabaster jar and anointed Jesus as he was sitting there fellowshipping with other men in the house of Simon the leper, who was no longer a leper, by the way, because Jesus had healed him. Um, and then he raised his brother, her brother Lazarus from the dead. Uh, fellowship doesn't get much better than that when you can bring other people to life, right? Uh, and that's something that I want to have happen here at Bethany. I want dead people to come to life. Um, I love you guys, and I'm so glad that I get to uh, shepherd and teach. Uh, but what I really want to see, and the purpose of the church, is to reach the lost and to have them come in, have them be brought to life. That's one of the visions, one of the things, one of the principles that I want to be uh, a focus in this church. And Jesus took his disciples. I mean, this was ultimate community, ultimate fellowship. These guys that he had spent almost every moment with for the past three years said he took them as far as Bethany and he talked to them. This is giving final instructions before he ascended and went back to the Father. Jesus reveals himself to us in the reading of his word and in fellowship with one another in the body of Christ. So we need to stay in the word and we need to not neglect meeting together, whether that be here corporately or individually outside of church. Okay, chapter 2, verse 9. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. <clears throat> Basically, keep your eyes on what you're doing. Don't get distracted. Stay the course. Uh, this is a real good example of discipleship. right? These women know what they're doing. We don't know if Ruth's ever done this before. She knew the principle of going out, that the poor can go out and lean in the fields. We don't know if she's ever done it before. And he says, stay close to them. Follow what they're doing. Uh, when Alicia and I were just kind of starting out with our family, we had little kids, and we did not have very many close friends. We didn't have anybody that we were doing life with. We had been in small groups, but uh, didn't have somebody in our same season of life. And so that became our prayer. And uh, maybe that is your prayer. Uh, if it is, we are <clears throat> praying in May, and that's what we're doing. If you guys have something that's on your heart, something that you need an answer to, take that to God in prayer this month. Uh, but that was our prayer, and so we started in on that. And God actually ended up, ended up bringing us into a community of people that we could do life with. And so in our most difficult seasons of life, the people that we had been in the fields with, so to speak, uh, were walking alongside of us and helping care for us. Um, that, that made a huge difference in our lives, and it's part of God's plan. And so we all need to be in fellowship, walking with people in discipleship. He says... Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. In between his conversation with the foreman, where he says, who is this? And then when he comes back and has this conversation with Ruth, apparently he had gone out and talked to the men and said, listen, leave her alone. Let her glean. Don't give her a hard time. Oh, and by the way, when she's thirsty, let her have something to drink. Um, women didn't have any rights in that culture. Zero. Uh, the, the Jewish men that day had a prayer where they would say, you know, thank you, Lord, that I was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. So that kind of gives you a good picture, and much less a poor foreign woman. It would have been really easy for these guys to have taken advantage of her, much less just, you know, mistreat her, basically. And um, pretty good reason to stay in his field, don't you think? He's already ordered her protection. Uh, this last part's a little bit strange because it talks about the young men who have drawn the water. And the reason it's strange is because in that culture, uh, drawing water was women's work. That's what the women did. Um, foreigners 
drew water for the Hebrews when they were in their land, and the women drew water for the men. Um, we read about Jesus, who was at the well in Samaria, and he meets the Samaritan woman there. And uh, he asks her, you know, hey, can I have a drink? And she's like, why are you talking to me? You know, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, why are you talking to me? And he said, well, if you knew who was talking to you, then you would have asked me for a drink. She's like, you're a man, you don't have anything to draw with. You know, this is my job, why are you even talking to me? Um, and then we read last week about uh, Abraham sending his servant back to his homeland to find a wife for Isaac. And he sits there at the well, waiting for the women to come out and draw water in the evening. And as he's waiting, just like as Jesus was waiting and the Samaritan woman came, just as this servant is waiting, the women come out. And Rebecca uh, comes out and he talks to her. God led her to the servant. So then we have another example here in Luke 22. Uh, Jesus, it's coming towards the end here. This is 22, verse 7. And he wants to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepared? He said to them, Behold, when you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large room that's all furnished. Now, it may not seem very strange to us. Uh, but in that day, in that culture, if they walked into town and they saw a man carrying a water jar, that would have stood out. That would have been different to them. So Jesus saying that very specifically would have uh, made sense. But it was something that we see happening again here in this story as the men are drawing water. Um, what's happening here, I call this scandalous grace because in that day, again, foreigners and women had no rights. And not only is he giving her rights, but he's saying, listen, stay in my field. Don't go anywhere else. Also, stay next to my young women. Now, remember, the, the law said that the poor people could glean in the margins. They were supposed to leave the outsides of their fields for the poor. And he's like, but not for you. I don't want you to stay in the margins. The margins are for the marginalized. I'm putting you in my field. Move up where you can get better, where you can do more. Don't worry about being harassed. I've already told them not to bother you. And not only will they not bother you, but they will serve you. This is all so countercultural that it's very scandalous grace that he is offering her. It's almost too much for Ruth at this point. Uh, somebody is looking out for her. They were in a place where she was just trying to get food so that they could survive. They had nothing at home, wherever they were staying. And uh, we go out and she sees this extreme grace, this provision, and she starts to have a glimmer of hope that there might be something new, some new life, a new start. In Revelations 21, it talks about our new start uh, as the new heavens and the new earth. And this is the hope that's inside of us, ultimately, right? We know that the world is not as it should be. It becomes more and more apparent every day. And so our hope, eventually, is that we are with our Savior, Jesus, and that he is making all things new. And so in chapter 21, verse 5, it says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. He will give it freely. All will be made new, and it will be, it'll be free. All we have to do is respond. 
The law says do, grace says it's done. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Boaz is telling her, I have already instructed it. It's already done. All you have to do is make a decision to accept what I'm offering. And she does. All right, verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground. She said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Why have we found grace in God's sight? Right? That is an ultimate question. Why have we found favor? And that's something that we should uh, ponder every day. He is redeeming and he is reconciling all things to himself. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. It's just unmerited, undeserved favor. That's what we call grace. We have the little acronym grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what grace is. David wrote, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you should care for him? Uh, that same David, Israel's greatest king, came through Ruth. David was one of her descendants. Um, Ruth had royalty in her blood. Literally. Um, okay, check this out. I was reminded of this this week. I can't believe I forgot it. And then this week I was reminded of it as I was doing my studies. Guys, this is going to blow you away. Are you ready? Okay. The Midrash. The Midrash is a Jewish commentary on the Old Testament. So you've got rabbis who are doing all of this commentary uh, on the scriptures. They're taking the Old Testament. They're also taking into account the oral traditions, everything that's been passed down from generation to generation. And the commentary says that Ruth was not just a Moabite woman, but that she was actually a Moabite princess. And that she was a princess, a daughter of none other than Eglon, King Eglon of Moab. Who is King Eglon of Moab? Glad you asked. All right. Judges. Judges chapter 3. Judges right before Ruth. Chapter 3, verse 12. Guys, if you think the Bible is boring, just read Judges, okay? It's not boring. This is about as good as it gets. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and they went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. It's a double-edged sword. For those of you that might ring a bell, the Bible scholars, that the word of God is a double-edged sword. All right, and it says that he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. It doesn't usually go out of its way to tell us that somebody is a large individual, so he must have been pretty big for it to tell us that he was a fat man. And when Ehud finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal, and he said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence, and Ehud came in, to him, as he was sitting alone in this cool roof chamber, Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he rose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. 
It gets worse than that. It actually tells us that he was so fat that the sword didn't come out. Went all the way in. Didn't come out. Now, wait a sec. <laughs> okay, so I'm doing my research here. And I thought, well, I, I typed in Eglon and Ehud, and I was trying to find some illustrations. I came across an interesting picture. Guys, I can't believe this is, put it up here. This is crazy. <laughs> That's supposed to be Ehud. Okay? I don't, he looks like a maniac, is what he looks like right now. And I don't know what the kids are doing. They're staring at him like, wow, what a cool sword. And it gets worse from there. I'm only going to show this one, but as I found it, I'm like, I can't believe people are showing this to our kids. That's Ehud. All right. The complications, or the, the, the implications here, it is complicated, but the implications here of the story of Ruth being a Moabite princess are huge. They're huge. A princess of the world, a carnal, sinful, disgusting people. She literally leaves or defects, if I can say it that way, over to God's people into the Israelites. And when she gets there, she meets a savior. Isn't that amazing? Her family line is now radically changed forever. Instead of being a princess in the world, she's now a princess in the family of God. Boaz may not have known who she actually was, but God did. That's one of the comforting things about our Lord, is that He fully knows you, and He fully knows me, and He loves us, even in spite of us. He knows every thought that we've had, He knows every sin we've committed, and yet He still loves us. He still wants us to be His kids. Are we living in gratitude for what He's done for us? I mean, here, what happens, Ruth falls to her knees. And she's blown out that this guy is offering her this incredible kindness. This woman who was part of a family that was oppressing and persecuting their people into submission. She knew who she was apart from God. Why was Paul so radically sold out to God that he was willing to endure anything and everything? He counted all things garbage, rubbish is basically what he says, compared to knowing the Lord, compared to knowing Jesus, everything else was like garbage because Paul knew who he was without a Savior. It's interesting because he calls himself the cheapest of sinners um, because of what he did to the church, what he did to the people of God. Uh, as he was starting out his ministry, he actually writes in some of his epistles, as he starts out, I'm the least of the apostles. He's like, I'm in the inner circle, I'm just, I'm just the least of them. He was very much into status before he came to know Jesus. And then later on, he says, I'm the least of the saints. I, I don't even really count myself with the apostles anymore. I'm just the least of the saints. And then one of, at the end of his life, right up one of the last of his epistles, he says, uh, I am the least of all. I am the chiefest of sinners. He says, Jesus came to save sinners, and I am the worst one. Andrew Murray, who was a great Christian pastor and prayer warrior, said this, that our insights into the need of redemption will largely depend upon our knowledge of the terrible nature of the power that has entered our game. Our insight into the, our need for redemption. People aren't going to see their need for redemption, for saving, unless they see what's inside of them. Unless they see how lost, how broken they are, how far they are from God. They're not going to recognize their need for it. So once we recognize how terrible that power is inside of us, then we can have a true appreciation for the saving grace that's being offered to us. Um, was Paul more of a sinner than anyone else? Of course not. But he had a clearer picture 
of who he was apart from Christ. And I think Ruth here has a very clear picture of who she was and what's being offered to her. Okay, verse 11. But Boaz answered, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Boaz commends Ruth for her faithfulness. He talks about who she is on the inside. He doesn't condemn her for who she is on the outside. He commends her for who she is on the inside. God told Samuel. Samuel went out to anoint a king, and he went to Jesse. And he had all his sons line up. And he came to the firstborn, and he said, that guy must be him. He's a good-looking kid. He's tall. He's handsome. And God said, I don't look at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. David is called a man after God's own heart. Have you ever thought about that? How is David called a man after God's own heart? I mean, a guy who was a murderer, a guy who was an adulterer, is called a guy that's after God's own heart. And then Jesus comes along and says, have you ever been angry with your brother? Then you're guilty of murder. Have you ever lusted after a woman in your own heart? Then you're an adulterer too. But is our heart, yes, we sin, and he is faithful and just to forgive us when we confess our sins. Um, and is our heart pointed towards him? Paul says, he's like, I've got a battle inside of me, waging war all the time between my spirit man and my flesh. But my heart is pointed towards him. And David, despite all of the things that were going on in his life, the bad decisions that he made, his heart was pointed towards the Lord. He wanted more of that in his life. Okay, Ruth here is showing the signs of a true convert. She has a true sense of who she is. She knows that God plus nothing equals everything. Ever heard that before? God plus nothing equals everything. What she was going to be provided for here in Bethlehem would be so much better than anything she would have had in the world. It's interesting because he said, The Lord repay you for what you've done. A full reward be given to you, and the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. The Lord repay you and give you a reward. Uh, Boaz here is basically saying a prayer over Ruth. May the Lord bless you, man. May he give you a reward, full payment. It's interesting because he actually is the answer to that prayer. Isn't that interesting? He is the reward. Did you know that Jesus sits at the right hand of God praying for you and I? It says that he sits there. Hebrews 7.25 says he's able to save to the other most those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is interceding for us. If he is up there praying for us and he is the answer to that prayer, don't you think that we're going to be okay? And I think back to that video that uh, we showed that Andrew Peterson one when he said, um, you know, if it's true, I just don't know what that would do to a person. Like how radically that would change somebody if, if it is true that Jesus is the Son of God. Like what, how should that change somebody? Change the way they think, change the way they talk, change the way they act. Does it change that in us? He's praying for us. He is the answer. Everything that we desire so much in our lives uh, is such a cheap substitute for what he offers so many things. I know I've said this before, but we all have basically a God-shaped hole right in the middle of us that only He can fill. We try to stuff it with so many things, uh, but only God can fill that hole. Um, one of the things that 
it's telling us is that not only is he our reward, but he always he will actually give us rewards. He is our reward, and he also will reward us. He will also give us reward. There's two judgments in the Bible. There is um, the judgment seat of Christ, and then there's the great white throne judgment. The great, great white throne judgment is the final judgment when God will judge the nations. Uh, but then there is the, um, the judgment seat of Christ, and when the church is raptured, the believers get judged, but not in a courtroom. Not in a courtroom, because Jesus has already paid the price. He's already taken the penalty for our sins. It's interesting because the word that he uses is a Greek word, uh, bima, which means judgment, seat. But it's always used in connection with um, a contest, a race, something like that. And we have judges today at two different meetings. We have judges that condemn people. We also have judges that commend people, like in races, uh, in contests. And what he's saying is that when we stand before him, the way that we have run the race he equates it to a race. There's going to be different rewards giving out. Now, we're not saved by works. We know that. We believe in the finished work of Christ. We don't believe in um, <clears throat> purgatory or anything like that. There is a heaven and a hell. There's one judgment. You either get to be with Jesus eternally or you're going to be cut off, separated from him eternally. But um, when he mentions it, when Paul mentions always connected to an athletic contest, and he says, listen, I want... I want a crown that's non-perishable. I'm not running a race getting a wreath like these guys are, which is going to fade, which is going to perish. I want an imperishable crown. Um, the race that we're running is the Christian life. We're all in the race together, but the people that are dedicated, that um, basically, as Paul says, the ones that perform better are going to get a better prize. That's kind of hard for us to hear. That's kind of weird because we don't talk about that very often. But... The truth is, in 1 Corinthians 3, let's just read it together, 1 Corinthians 3, chapter 3, verse 12. So, so if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, but the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test the sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. Basically, everything that we have done, whether we think we've done it for God or for ourselves, it's all going to be tested. But we see whether or not we did it from a pure motive. Uh, now, the ones that lose the race, they don't get horsewhipped. They don't get thrown out. They just are disappointed, right? They're bummed because they didn't earn what they could have if they had gone all out for Jesus in this life. There was a sign uh, that used to be at the register's office at Dallas Theological Seminary, and it said, salvation is by grace, but graduation is by works. <laughs> salvation is by grace, but the rewards that we get in heaven are by works. Uh, there was a sermon by Leonard Ravenhill. If any of you have heard of Leonard Ravenhill, uh, the best sermon that I've ever heard on this topic called The Judgment Seat of Christ. And I listened to it again this week. And I would encourage you to listen to it. It will sober you up very quickly. She talks about the things that we do in this world and the things that we spend our time on and the things that matter for eternity. And he talks about gold and silver and precious stones. And these things can withstand fire. They can go through the fire and they're going to last. And he says, wood, hay, and stubble, beautiful things could be made out of wood, but they're going to be turned to ash in the fire. 
and then hay and stubble doesn't take much for those things. They're just going to disappear the night. They're going to be any ash left over when those things are burned up. And he talks about what is our motivation. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Whatever we build our lives upon, whatever we think we've done for Christ, it'll be put to the test through the fire to see if it was motivated by selfish ambition if it really was done as unto the Lord. That's a good thing that we should ask ourselves, a good heart check from time to time. You know, the thing that I'm doing, am I doing it for human reward or am I doing it for eternal reward? Because, uh, you know, Jesus talked about the Pharisees. Listen, these guys love to stand on the street corner. They love to stand there and pray. They love to make sure that everybody's watching them as they give to the poor, and that's their reward. Like, they've had it. Because people saw them do it. They wanted to be seen by men. That's all they're getting. They're not going to get a reward in the next life. You may say, you know what, Nathan, I don't really care about rewards. I'm not really about that. Um, I'm, I'm here to tell you that you will care when you get there. You will care. Yes, we'll be in heaven. And yes, we will be happier and joyful more than any other time in our life, more than we can possibly imagine. But I think that our capacity for enjoyment will be different based on how we live in this life. Um, I guess an analogy that I had heard about this too is that, you know, when my kids were little, when they were babies, one of the things they would do, their favorite things, was to sit in the kitchen and drag out all the pots and pans. Right? And they would just sit there in the kitchen and bang on the pots and the pans, and they thought that that was the best thing in the world. They were so happy and joyful. And if I saw Elena sitting in the kitchen banging on pots and pans now, I'd be a little concerned because she has matured. She is finding enjoyment. Her level of enjoyment, her maturity has gotten to the point where she can, you know, enjoy at a greater capacity. And I think that in heaven, depending on our maturity, depending on how we've matured in this life and how we have opened ourselves up to the Lord, our capacity for enjoyment there will be different. Just a thought. Under whose wings we have come to take refuge. Uh, we can do a whole sermon on wings. But David uh, actually wrote about this. He used this symbolism in Psalm 17, 8. It says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. In Psalm 36, 7, he says, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. And when Jesus was entering Jerusalem, as he was going to the triumphant entry, he looked over Jerusalem and he said, um, how much I have wanted to gather you as a chick gathers, or as a hen gathers the chicks underneath her wings, but you were unwilling. You were unwilling. We need to take shelter in him. That has to be part of our decision. He's standing there. He wants us to come under his wings, but we have to make the choice to go do that. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Boaz here is really living out the essence of the law. What it means, he is actually doing. That's what love does. Love fulfills the law. That's what Jesus did. And at this moment, as we saw before, she knows that she's not worthy. Uh, and it's an amazing thing to her that he is speaking so kindly. Not in condemning tones, but he is commending her for how she was treated, her, her mother-in-law, Naomi. Uh, the Bible says that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And she here has fallen 
to her feet, realizing she's not worthy. And that's what we should do when we realize the kindness of God. And the question that struck me yesterday is, um, are we, is his kindness leading us to repentance or is it leading us to apathy, to complacence? Because those are the two, those are the two options. Uh, it should give us a tremendous sense of humility. Um, and are we repenting or are we abusing the grace of God? Because we think, well, Nathan, I mean, you told us that all of our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. So, you know, no big deal. But if we're abusing the grace of God, then we are not truly repentant. There hasn't been a change in our hearts for the Lord. Uh, when Jesus would talk to... This is really getting bad, isn't it? It's squeaking. Um, sorry, distracting. Uh, Jesus would talk to these people and he would say, your sins are forgiven. Now go and sin no more. Is that a strange thing? Go and sin no more. Like, we're sinful people. We have this struggle. We're going to sin. It's like basically, listen, repent. Change your heart. Yes, we're going to sin. Yes, we're going to have this struggle. But change your heart. Point it towards the Lord. Some people have an outward show of being sorry, uh, but their heart hasn't changed within them. They haven't let God's kindness change them. The prophet Joel told people, he said, rend your hearts and not your garments. They would tear their clothes as an outward sign that they were mourning. He said, that doesn't mean anything to the Lord. If your heart inside is still black, if it's still in rebellion. So rend your hearts to the Lord. Alicia and I were listening yesterday to a sermon on the way home uh, from A.W. Tozer. And I've never actually listened to a message from A.W. Tozer. I've read some of his stuff, but I hadn't listened. And I can be honest, at the beginning, it was a little rough. It was hard for me to get into. It was an old sermon. But he was setting everything up. Um, and he was talking about a sermon in Hosea uh, when Hosea was talking to them about plowing up the fallow ground. Um, and... I didn't know much about fallow ground, to be honest. I knew it was hard ground. Um, but do you know why farmers burn their fields? Have you ever driven down the highway and you see them burning their fields? It's always kind of a strange thing to me. Why are they burning them? Uh, well, they're basically burning off all of the junk so that the new growth can come through. They're burning off all the weeds. Anything that would be in competition with new growth, new life. And so they're getting that out of the way so that the plowing can begin and that they can be seeded. Because a fallow field... The only difference between a, a field that's been plowed and a fallow field is that one has been neglected. It still has fertile soil underneath, but it's been left. It's been left to weeds. It's been left uh, to nature, and it's gotten all overgrown. And over time, the ground has grown hard, and then you can't even get anything through it. Uh, yesterday, we were even driving, and I saw a pasture that had been burned. I'm like, why? Okay, that's not even planted. Why are you burning pasture? Uh, well, there's probably, I'm guessing, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, if there's cattle out there, which there were, they probably don't want them eating some of the stuff out there. They need new growth. They need to burn off some of the junk so that a new life can come through. And basically, what Hosea was telling people is, plow up the fallow ground of your heart. It's interesting because he said, you, you plow up the fallow ground in your heart. You need to put your hand to the plow and do that. The Lord may do the burning. He may burn off all the junk, all the weeds from your life to make room for new growth, but you're the one that needs to plow it up. You need to make it fertile. I mean, just like we talked about uh, this, the parable of the sower and the seeds that, you know, the sower is Jesus and he's throwing out the seeds of the gospel, but the soil is in different conditions. And the ones that fell among the thorns, it grew up but the thorns choked it out. So he's got to burn that stuff off. And then we have to make the choice to plow up the fallow ground of our heart. And I think uh, that you have these two women, Ruth and Naomi, right? They have both suffered loss. They have both gone through a tragedy. But I would suggest that Ruth 
had done the work of letting her heart been plowed up. And Naomi had a hard heart. She had become bitter. She had not let the soil of her heart become turned over. So she was unwilling to accept her circumstances, whereas Ruth was in a place where she could receive it. Uh, Ruth is saying, I am your servant. I submit myself to you. Even though I am a Gentile, I'm not one of your servants. I'm not like one of your servants. I'm not uh, one of the chosen people, but I want to be. And so I submit myself to you. I make myself your servant. Um, and that's what happens in our life. When we submit ourselves to his gift of grace, we become his chosen people. Some people, they argue, you know, is it free will? You know, do we have to make a choice or is it God's sovereignty? He chooses us and there's nothing we really have to do about it. And what I would say is if you are wondering if you are one of the chosen, then go ahead and make a choice and then you'll know <laughs> that he chose you. So not really worth arguing about, but we do have to respond. We do have to make a decision uh, when we're grafted in. Uh, a man by the name of Dwight Pentecost said, Mercy is God's ministry to the miserable. It is both intensely personal and immensely practical. For when I'm treated unfairly, God's mercy relieves my bitterness. When I grieve over loss, it relieves my pain and anger and denial. When I struggle with disability, it relieves my self-pity. When I endure physical pain, it relieves my hopelessness. And when I deal with being sinful, it relieves my guilt. Mercy. It's his kindness, it's his goodness, it's his mercy that moves us. It is scandalous grace that he offers us. It'd be good for all of us to ponder that this week. That is his kindness leading us to repentance? And what is, what does the soil of our heart look like? Is it fertile? Is it ready to be planted? Are we ready for God to be able to plant those seeds in our life that are going to bring forth new fruit? Or... Are we going to remain hard? Are we going to remain there? Are we going to hold on to those things in our life that need to be let go, that we need to ask forgiveness for? Scandalous grace. <laughs>